and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, Dr. Nathan Connell, the Chief of Medicine and Clinical Chief of Hematology at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital, an outspoken advocate on LGBTQ plus health issues online and in real life. He joins us on Bloodstream. On the heels of National Coming Out Day, he speaks with Bloodstream's James Maple. Love to see it. He's kind of a Twitter celebrity. He is kind of a Twitter celebrity. We got to wave at each other in Montreal this year, which was nice. Next time, we'll actually speak to each other. But we waved in person, so that's <laughs> just step in the right direction. Amazing. Uh, also on the show, Annalise Ellis, a longtime in-real-life friend and fellow camper and person with a bleeding disorder. She shares her story of how Von Willebrand disease impacted her first pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear that. There's such a packed lineup. But before we get to our guests, I just have to mention, Patrick and I have some updates. <laughs> we do? Trust me, we actually, you and I, we have updates. Okay, I'm excited to hear the updates. That's really, <laughs> what a tease. Uh, yeah. We'll also wrap... This loaded episode with the latest from The Well, led by Jessica Lauren Richmond, this time on the topic of being present. We've got all that and more on today's show. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. We so appreciate each and every one of you. And if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to those podcasts. Episodes of Bloodstream can also be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page, which is a cool thing. And as always, if you have <laughs> suggestions for us about topics or guests, or if you have questions for Patrick and myself, please ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at Also, we mentioned it quite a bit, but it certainly doesn't hurt to mention it again. Bloodstream no, Media and Believe not. Limited are always casting something. Always. It's true. Almost always. Always, always. Whether it's a film or a video series or a podcast or even a storytelling event, there's always something going yeah. on. So we're always looking for patients, caregivers, clinicians, and family members to share their story. So if you or someone you know would like to inquire about casting opportunities with us, once again, please email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, Amy Board. 100%. So do I. Do so you? Do I. Okay. I do okay. believe in that. One day uh, I'm going to catch you on a day where you don't believe in it. <laughs> uh, and Takeda is dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda, for making this possible. PJL, we are not in the same room today. We're not. We're in different rooms. We're in different we're parts in of the town. We're in different, literally a different part of town which has not been the case for the past few months. You get update number one. Tell everybody why you're not in the same room with me. I'm not because on Friday, just a few days ago, I had 
foot surgery. So foot surgery. For those who've been following along at home, you'll recall that last we left our heroes, uh, I started the year wondering about an ankle replacement and thinking about an ankle fusion, and then was yeah. introduced to this idea that this thing called a debridement, which is a, a synovectomy of sorts and would open up and clear out some dead tissue and also give my uh, orthopedic surgeon the opportunity to shave down the pretty substantial bone spurs I had in the front part of my ankle. That's what I opted to have. Uh, it's a much less steep road to recovery, but nonetheless, it was only a few days ago, so we're still we're still in the early days uh, on crutches for the first time in a few years. But it went well. I'm doing well. I'm just home. I've got it elevated. I've got it wrapped, and that's about it. But it, it went really well. It just means I'm home and a little bit out of commission for uh, a few days. I know you've been in pain for a long time, but not until I talk. I talked to Natalie yesterday. Natalie, your wife stopped by the office to get your podcasting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Show must and go on. She, I don't know. You know, sometimes. Well, we've talked about this. We've talked about pain, you and I, about how we downplay it. Sure. And hearing from her, I don't think I've fully appreciated how much pain you've been in uh, for the last few months, probably for a long time, more than a few months. So I just wanted to give you some space to, I don't know, share a little bit about what that pain has been like and how this surgery could alleviate that in some way. And It's been pretty disruptive at night. Uh, most yeah. especially. For, uh, I've been, uh, during the day, it's been more manageable, but what's really gotten, you know, un- unmanageable the last year and a half or so are the ways in which it, it flares up at night and disrupts my ability to fall asleep, dis- disrupts me staying asleep, you know, yeah. my quality of sleep. And then, then there's sort of a down downhill effect from that. You know, I'm not sleeping as well. I'm crabbier and irritable and, and I am in pain and it's a little harder to tolerate. And so it's been, I've been sort of managing that for a while. And the hope is that this surgery, it won't necessarily take all of my pain away. My ankle has a few different areas that contribute to the pain, but the bone spurs in the front were significant and certainly major parts of, of my the pain experience. So I'm really hopeful that now, while I may not you know, be without pain, it'll be reduced enough that my sleep and, and and just life is not quite as disrupted. How's recovery going? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, um, a little tough being a patient and yeah. trying to just accept, you know, I had some flare-ups yesterday that reminded me like, all right, I might be pushing it a little bit with how much I'm moving around and how much I'm trying to do. And mm. this isn't like a push through time, you know, especially the, the first like couple weeks. So trying to negotiate that a little bit, but, and last night was the hardest sleeping night so far, the most disrupted oh. sleep night, but you know, also, uh, also weaning off the pain medication. So yeah. it's, you know, I'm feeling it a, a little bit more, so it's, it's a process, but I feel like it's going pretty well. So I'm encouraged. I'm really encouraged good. so far. Well, you so. got a good patient report from Natalie. Natalie said <laughs> That's you were good a good know. patient. Yeah. She's yeah. been an all-star caregiver. <laughs> Shout out to Natalie Lynch. So that's on my end, but Amy Board, you've got you've got an update of your own, and I was trying to think of something clever to say, but instead I'm just going to turn the table over to you and let you tell everybody what's your update. Yeah, I have a life update. I I got engaged almost a month ago, actually. It's been a while, Bloodstream listeners. You have not heard my voice in a while. We uh, we had a week off, and then I was in Africa doing work for several weeks. So. 
coming after that i'm i am betrothed <laughs> and listeners you guys have heard about my boyfriend rob who who also works here at believe he's the one it's funny he's uh the one we're, we're all massively creative and you know kind of like purple prose creative and rob has that in him too but rob also i think like has made us who we are you know he's like the spreadsheet guy he's the numbers guy he's sometimes he squashes our dreams because <laughs> it's like not possible he has, he's that person and he's been a, a tremendous human and partner for me and so we're, we're we're over the moon we're very excited congratulations yeah did you have a sense it was coming did you know it was coming were you shocked it happened no, i i kind of knew i mean we had picked out the ring together but we had like a week off so i kind of i've i figured it was either going to be here or we have a family vacation at the end of the year um but it just it happened like the first day like the first hike that we were on so it did kind of take me by surprise it was really lovely we decided to not tell anybody for the whole week you know which was super smart because it's mm. kind of a, it's such a big life thing that it take it took me a while to have it settle mm -hmm. and then like when it settled it was just lovely to like rejoice with him alone and then when we felt really good and secure with us is when we like came home and like told people we told our families and then we like told all the pals you know we like texted all the friends it didn't feel overwhelming it felt really nice glad you had that time for yourselves yeah congratulations so big life updates pjl you big and i life updates indeed we've done the updates let's get into the good stuff let's get into the good stuff before we do, this next segment is brought to you by Genentech. Open enrollment is coming up, and there may be an opportunity to optimize your healthcare coverage. Genentech has created several resources to help you navigate this process and make decisions confidently. To learn more about these resources, visit www.hemophiliaaccess.com, and we will have that link in the program notes. What a good reminder that it's open enrollment. Yes, yeah, very important. Open enrollment, that time is coming yet again I, I, I somehow wah, wah. somehow we're at this point in the calendar all right folks bloodstreams james maple his interview with dr nathan connell is right now hello bloodstream listeners it is your boy james maple bloodstream correspondent here with dr nathan connell chief of medicine at brigham and women's faulkner college and associate director at boston hemophilia center as well Dr. Nathan Connell, thank you very much for sitting down with us today for this interview. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk a little bit about our work. Wonderful, wonderful. If we could, up top, give us a bit about your history, what got you into your field, a quick little synopsis about who you are. Sure. So, I, as mentioned, I'm a hematologist on the adult side of care with the Boston Hemophilia Center and Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. Originally from Florida, but through many different pathways, ended up in Boston, and I've been in the New England area for about 15 years. I originally started off thinking I was going to do more in the oncology world, and through my training, ended up pivoting and doing hematology. And then over my fellowship training, developed an interest in bleeding disorders, and then I've been focused in that area ever since. So you seem like a great person to talk to about this topic in particular. So the, the kind of crux of our conversation, I think, is going to be the cross-section between the LGBTQ community and hemophilia. And I've noticed quite a few overlaps, but can you tell us what are some basic connections or intersections between folks with bleeding disorders and folks in the LGBTQ plus community? 
Well, I think the first thing that's really important to recognize is that every area of medicine and healthcare overlaps with LGBT health. There are patients from the LGBTQIA plus community, and, and there's that alphabet soup of letters that we talk about in all different aspects of this community. But these individuals need health care. And so whether it's primary care, surgical care, obstetrics and gynecology, everybody needs this care. Part of the reason that I think it's a little bit more of interest in the bleeding disorder community is that there's certain aspects in the history of the two groups that intersect with one another. Probably the most prominent and well-known in the forefront of everyone's minds is HIV and the fact that individuals that received blood products and blood factor products in the early 80s had this risk of contracting HIV. And so early on, the large population of people with HIV here in the United States were gay men and also individuals with hemophilia. And so there was a lot of overlap in how these clinics to support these individual populations developed. See, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a great segue into our next question. The idea of LGBTQ plus community and like bad blood in the 80s and 90s was pervasive across the U.S. In particular, us here at Believe Limited, we're working on a documentary focusing on the Ryan White story as well. With that said, I feel like in the past several years, it's been a less of a stigma regarding that topic. Do you feel that that has happened in your practice as well? I do think so. It's always hard to know how much of it is real versus perceived. In our clinic, we try to be very conscious of it. I oftentimes have a lanyard on with rainbow colors, and many patients know that I am a gay man. And so they come into the clinic understanding that it's a, it's a safe space to disclose and talk about these topics. But I think that some of this comes from a societal shift over the last several decades in understanding what is HIV, what were the risk factors for it. I think a lot of people nowadays have met somebody, either a friend or a family member who has HIV. And so it started to have less of a, of a stigma. I think the other piece is understanding that we have a lot of great therapies now and people with HIV are living long and healthy lifespans with undetectable viral loads. So I think that there's an overall shift. We certainly talk about generational differences in younger people that are growing up in society today. This is something that they just see as normal and that they have many friends who are part of the LGBT plus community. So that intersection has probably been why it, there's been a shift. But I personally remember 2014 when the Supreme Court decision came out about same-sex marriage, and there was a lot of angst at that time. But when we think here we are just you know less than a decade later, a lot of people are supportive of it. And there's been a clear shift in support of the LGBT plus population. That's a great point. And I think one thing that is ubiquitous among all age groups, as you just mentioned, is the idea of inclusion. And that begs the question that I have for you next is, from your perspective, how do you define and what does inclusion mean to you? As with all things and how you define them, there are a lot of different ways to go about doing it. I think, you know, there's the dictionary definition of inclusion, and that is creating a structure or a framework or environment so that individuals who have been historically marginalized are brought in and made part of the conversation in the environment. And that's kind of a very broad definition. How do I think about inclusion in healthcare? 
Well, inclusion in healthcare is definitely about, again, making structures, making systems so that people feel that even though they may have been from a historically marginalized population in the past, that they know that they're going to get adequate health care, that they're going to get safe, evidence-based, high-quality care, regardless of how they identify or which diagnoses they carry. And so we do a lot of work nowadays with our residents and our hematology fellows in thinking about this. There's an understanding that we need to support research into this area. You really can't fix a problem until you know more about it and you've defined it. But clearly, there needs to be a shift from just talking about it and actually doing stuff and changing the structures that exist. The idea of changing the structures strikes this next question for me. In particular, when it comes to people of color who are in the LGBTQ plus community and and those same folks who have a bleeding disorder, I feel like oftentimes their particular needs are glossed over. And with your previous answer about focusing on marginalized community, I'm curious to know if you can think of in your practice any particular aspects of healthcare that people who identify within the LGBTQ plus community who are also of color? Is there anything that they should be looking out in particular when it comes to healthcare? Yeah, there, there are definitely a couple of areas in these intersections. And intersectionality has really kind of grown in the last couple of years of thinking about how do two groups that may have also been marginalized or othered in some ways how does the intersection of having both of those identities or multiple identities come together? So just generally in the LGBT plus population, um, there's clearly still discrimination and this feeling of separation in groups where individuals of color may not feel comfortable in some of the traditional queer spaces that exist. And then kind of the same thing happens with bleeding disorders. You come into a clinic, you're queer, you have a bleeding disorder, and you have two other identities. How much of it defines who you are on a day-to-day basis, disclosing this information. So when you have an intersection of all three, it's very tough to think about what are the best ways to address that. Recently, at the National Hemophilia Foundation's Bleeding Disorders Conference, there was a panel discussion about therapeutics in bleeding disorders. And I have to give a lot of credit to the NHF president and CEO, Dr. Len Valentino, who was very blunt when he said that we have traditionally run clinical trials in white men. We've run hemophilia trials in white men, and this was the population that was most served by hemophilia treatment centers. Hemophilia treatment centers are federally funded. They exist in large academic centers, but clearly different academic centers are going to have different connections to the community in which they reside. So I think one aspect is understanding, one, that you need to be inclusive and go out into the community, do educational outreach, and help identify individuals who have mild bleeding disorders and may not have come to the attention of a treatment center. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is understanding that hemophilia treatment centers are evolving and they're becoming more inclusive of people who have a diagnosis other than hemophilia. So a lot of the work that I've done over the last eight to 10 years has been around von Willebrand disease. It disproportionately affects women because of heavy menstrual bleeding and childbirth, 
However, it's inherited equally by men and women. Many patients with von Willebrand disease have not been traditionally seen in hemophilia treatment centers. And so I have a number of patients who, individuals of color, who have dealt with heavy menstrual bleeding, missing school and work, missing family events, have gone inadequately treated because they haven't had the same access to care as other affluent populations may have had. What I would also say about this is that by bringing these patients into treatment centers and getting them connected to resources, you get aspects of social work and physical therapy that weren't traditionally thought of for these patient populations. As kind of a final piece to think about is that, one, we know that individuals with bleeding disorders have a high incidence of mental health issues such as PTSD and anxiety. We've seen that in our own population here at the Boston Hemophilia Center with work that our social worker Amanda Stahl has done. We also know that LGBT plus individuals have a much higher rate of suicide attempts. And so when you combine these populations and also think about rates of mental health and, and lack of support and resources, in persons of color, it's a perfect storm if you don't think about it properly to come together. That's a great answer and really puts that question into perspective, I think, for, for people who even aren't of color to, to think about in their day-to-day -day life. Speaking of day-to-day -day life, something that is a part of everyone's life is sex. We've had a previous episode discussing the cross-section of sex and hemophilia, but let's delve a bit deeper into what it means to be a member of the LGBTQ plus community and hemophilia as well, or bleeding disorder in general. Are there any particular risks involved that are higher for people who identify with these two communities? So it's all about risk assessment and risk mitigation. And so thinking about your question of what are the risks, certainly anything in which there is sexual activity and there's a potential for bleeding and contact with bodily fluids runs a risk of transmission of bloodborne pathogens such as HIV and hepatitis. And it's also thinking about sex is a normal thing. Sex is a wonderful part of our biology and our individual ability to connect as individuals to each other. I think that one of the risks that a lot of people and even clinicians don't think about is that certain sexual positions can then expose a specific joint to more risk. And so there's a great pamphlet that the United Kingdom has that was put together by some hemophilia treatment nurses about things like the missionary position and other positions and which joints and which muscles might be at risk. Sometimes people come in and they have a hip bleed or a joint bleed, and we're asking them all the normal questions that we typically do about activities and injuries and potential risks, and we may not find one, but if you actually start taking a sexual history, you might find that there was a particular position that was there. And so then we think about where do we go for how to prevent bleeds and how do we address this? One is having a frank conversation and coming at it without any assumptions or pre-established biases about our patients. So one of the questions that I ask as a history when I first meet a patient in our clinic and we're going through their health, I ask them if they're sexually active. I ask them if they're sexually active with men or women or both. 
and I just make it part of the normal conversation. And then as part of this, as part of my prevention of bleeding discussion, I talk about ways in which to prevent bleeds during sexual activity. Now, how this actually goes into LGBT plus health, we also have to think about having an honest conversation about penetrative sex. And so many terms that are used in the community, such as being a top or a bottom, we think about the risk of receptive anal intercourse and the risk of bleeding. And so if somebody is at risk of bleeding, you may want to think about having them take a factor infusion prior to sexual activity. If somebody is prone to an iliopsoas bleed because of the stress on their joints from a very specific sexual position, that's also important to talk about. And it's also about creating a culture where they feel that they can discuss things with us. We oftentimes do testing for HIV and hepatitis in our clinics. And for some patients, we may be their major point of contact with the healthcare system. So not being afraid to have a conversation about other sexually transmitted infections. Recently, we had a lot of discussion here in the United States about monkeypox and close physical activity with individuals. And we're talking about giving injections and vaccinations. And then you're talking about what are the risks of bleeding with these different vaccinations. So there's a lot of intersections that happen that people will think of frequently, but then also you have to think about having an honest conversation regarding sex. That seemed to be like one meta narrative that's popped up quite a bit throughout this entire interview is the topic of just basic discussion to solve life's biggest problems in a sense. For some folks who are, you know, outside of the LGBTQ plus community and outside of the hemophilic community, what are ways that they can be an ally to, to support if you are a caregiver, a, a friend, a family member, a neighbor? What are some, some positive ways that they can elevate this conversation? Well, I think the first is just starting allyship with the LGBT plus community. And I would say most people, even if they don't realize it, they know somebody who would be part of this community. And I think it's about making it a normal part of the conversation. Don't make assumptions about who may, somebody may be attracted to. I just recently had to do photographs for new headshots, professional headshots here at work. And the photographer asked me if I was married. I said, yes. And then his response was, well, then make sure your wife gets to sign off on these as well. And I said, or in my case, my husband. It's about coming at it and realizing that there are a lot of people out there who may not fit into what you initially assume. And so that's, I think, the first level of allyship. The second part is thinking about how to be inclusive at events around bleeding disorders. There's a really great quote from a, a gentleman, Justin Levesque. This was posted online, and so I've, I've taken it from there. He had said, when it comes to being gay and queer and having hemophilia, it can sometimes feel like two key parts of my identity are in conflict. In 2014, after moderating a session for LGBT plus people with bleeding disorders, I was questioned on the validity of the session and was asked, why are you trying to bring AIDS back into our community? And so I think recognizing that these are still uncomfortable topics for people and that there's still a lot of work to be done. And so think about how you set up an event and what's the language that you use in invitations and how you're going to be inclusive and welcoming of people that look like you, but also aren't like you. And I think those are kind of the first steps for allyship. 
for the for the community. Well, thank you very much today, Dr. Nathan Connell. If, my last question for you is how can people find you if should they have any further questions or want to discuss this topic in more detail online? So I think probably the best way for people to reach me in general and to initiate conversations is on Twitter. I use Twitter, my Twitter account. It's my first two initials and then my last name. So NT. C-O-N-N-E-L-L is my Twitter handle. I'm active on there as part of conversations. I do also do a little bit of work in transgender health and thinking about how do we provide hormonal therapy and safe surgery in those situations, which is another area with this. And so there's a lot more that we can certainly discuss and, and happy to be part of those conversations online if anyone is interested. Wonderful. Well, it was great to have this conversation with you online. And until next time, thank you again for all your work, for this lively discussion, and we hope to speak with you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nathan Connell, thank you for coming on the Bloodstream Podcast. Thank you to James Maple for that interview. And listeners, I want to remind you, the Bloodstream Podcast is brought to you in part today by a new educational gene therapy resource from CSL Bering called Heme Evolution. As gene therapy research continues for people living with hemophilia B, CSL Bering has developed an educational website called Heme Evolution that allows visitors to explore the advancing science around gene therapy and the potential to address unmet needs in some people with this condition. Gene therapy is an innovative approach to treatment for a medical condition by introducing a new fully functioning or working gene into the body or by turning off or changing the gene that is causing the condition. For people with hemophilia B, gene therapy has the potential to sustain blood clotting ability. To learn more, check out hemevolution.com or follow the link in the program notes. Thank you again to CSL Bearing, and remember to check out www.hemevolution.com or click on the link in the program notes. Listeners, now let's go on over to Patrick's interview with his good pal and camp buddy, Annalise, to hear more about her pregnancy, her labor, and her journey with von Willebrand's disease. Okay, I am joined now after a little technical kerfuffle by my longtime fellow camper, counselor, and friend, Annalise Ellis. Hi, Annalise. It's a pleasure to speak to you today, and thanks for joining me here on Bloodstream. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Annalise and I have known each other through camp, as I mentioned, where we were campers and counselors and volunteers and this is and that's is at the Double H Ranch in upstate New York, a serious fun camp. But as we were just commiserating about off mic, it has been many years, over a decade since we've actually spoken, even though Annalise lives in the town I went to high school in and about eight minutes from my mom. So we're going to fix that at some future date especially now that we both have babies, which gets to the point of what we're here to talk about. I got a message from you a few weeks back that said, I had a baby in February and Von Willebrand's colored almost every aspect of my experience. So I want to get into that with you, but I want to start with what seems like the right place to start, which is by saying congratulations on the birth of Nathaniel, your first child, I believe. Yes, thank you so much. Yep, Nate was born in February of this year, and we're enjoying all of the the fun parenting firsts. Uh, he's about five months old, and uh, just such a joy. You look good for the mom of a five-month-old. Thank you so much. Yeah, he just started sleeping in his own room recently, and I think that's been a huge help. So hoping to drop the overnight feed at some point in the near future, but I think I've adapted well to sleeping less. 
Yes, it's, uh, it's amazing what necessity can do. <laughs> so it's great to have you on and, and, and having Vivian at 17 months old. It, it wasn't too long ago. She was born February 15th of last year. So they have oh, awesome. birthdays not that far apart. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with giving a little bit of context, especially for our audience. I mentioned the CAMP connection and mentioned quickly there von Willebrand disease in particular, but could you help our audience set the table for us, if you would? What is your connection to and background and with the world of inherited blood disorders? Absolutely. So I was diagnosed when I was four years old with von Willebrand's. My mom didn't know that she had it, but she thought that something might be amiss with me because I used to get these epically long nosebleeds. They were like 45 minutes long and just didn't seem quite right. I think I was probably bruising easily at the time too, but it was really the nosebleeds that were first and foremost, the issue that we wanted to get addressed. So I was diagnosed at four. I started going to the Albany Med Hemophiliac Center, and that's how I found out about Double H and was a camper for many years, as you mentioned. And throughout my adult life, I really haven't had many symptoms of von Willebrand's, which has been great. I got my last nosebleed my freshman year in college. Obviously, I have little ones here and there, but for the most part, they're gone, but I always am aware of it in terms of, you know, if I have to get a surgery or something, even minor things that I always bring it up with my doctor. And so when I knew I wanted to have a child, I mentioned it to my OBGYN and she said, oh, that's so great that you have mentioned it because we can, you know, look at your levels and get a sense of what you having a baby with vulnerable bronze would look like. Right. So it was a conversation that we started even before I got pregnant, which was a helpful thing. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that you were doing or or looking out for then as a result of that conversation? Sure. So for the most part, the really interesting thing about von Willebrand's during pregnancy is that your numbers tend to normalize, which is cool. And then the concern is just what would happen as soon as the baby's born. Typically your levels drop. And so you know, if you don't have a treatment plan for Mm -hmm. right after the baby is born, that's where there's a concern for bleeding. Got it. Okay. So in your case, then you mentioned colored almost every aspect of my experience. So when did that start? I think what my initial frustration with the whole process and how it, you know, Von Willebrand's came to be part of it was that I was seeing one hematologist. I saw him prior to getting pregnant. I knew what my levels were at that point. And then I saw him and we talked about making a plan for delivery. And he seemed kind of uncomfortable with being the only person to authorize the plan and actually recommended Hmm. that I see another hematologist. So I switched hematologists at that point and spoke to somebody else about what the plan could potentially be. And, Mm -hmm. and that's really the plan for treatment after, and also whether or not I could have an epidural Hmm. because there is a risk of spinal hematoma with epidurals. So I think that's where the discomfort stemmed from was putting me at risk for having a bleed during labor. Um, So the second hematologist I saw, we redid my levels at that appointment. And then they told me that it was actually the anesthesiologist's call for whether or not I could have an epidural. So there was, you know, kind of a A little bit of passing the buck around there. Yeah, definitely. And then I also heard that the maternal fetal medicine doctor I was seeing had 
a role in all of this. So I was seeing three different care providers, my OBGYN, the MFM doctor, and the hematologist. And then I was told that it was really the anesthesiologist call on whether or not I could have an epidural and that they were having lots of conversations about me and they would have meetings about it. And the whole time I'm, I'm thinking, I thought this was a fairly common bleeding disorder that I would think you guys are pretty well versed in, but it didn't really seem like it. Wow. Yeah, it is amazing. As prevalent as von Willebrand disease may be, occurring in up to 1% of all people, which is pretty common when you think about it, we know that the vast majority are undiagnosed. And then we go to those who are diagnosed, like yourself, or educated like yourself, and can self-advocate the way you do. And yet to find yourself in a spot where you're just sort of like your head's on a swivel between three different doctors, all of whom are eventually saying it's the anesthesiologist's call. I just imagine frustration, some fear, like, am I actually being cared for here? And yeah, a sense of, am I an alien on a foreign planet? Like, how is this not something that there's better understanding about, or at the very least, knowledge about where to go for more information? Like, where are the experts that you can go to if you are not one? All of those things. <laughs> On top of that, it was at the very end of my pregnancy. I think I had a conversation with the anesthesiologist. So I was finally, you know, just directly in touch with an anesthesiologist who said that I could have an epidural, I think about a week before I delivered. So it was, in my opinion, pretty last minute. Down to the wire. Yeah. And Nate did come a little early. I was scheduled to be induced again because of the bleeding disorder. They wanted to have everything in place. Mm -hmm. And he ended up coming five days before the induction date. And how did the actual labor delivery and postpartum then go? Were there complications? Tell us about that. There weren't any complications, which is great. But I would say, you know, how I feel that the bleeding disorder colored it was really even from the beginning of the delivery itself. And it's funny to think back on it now, but it was a little stressful at the time. So at the end of the labor, I was at the hospital for less than 12 hours. And toward the end of my labor, everything was moving fairly quickly. And I felt like I didn't, the medical professionals that I expected to be on the scene weren't. And part of that was because it was when shifts changed. So I had a nurse that ended up, she was leaving and I had a day nurse coming in. And then also the doctors start at 8am and Nathaniel was born at 8.20. So the timing was not great. <laughs> and it's Again, funny because so when the doctor came in after my husband went out into the hall because I said, you have to get somebody in here now. I'm having this baby. And wow. I felt like I didn't have the support team that I needed. So the doctor came in and she said, oh, I'm sorry. I was reviewing you know, the notes on your case because you have this bleeding disorder. <laughs> and so I'm laughing because... You know, it was, of course, the one doctor that I hadn't seen in the practice. Sure. But I thought, I forget the bleeding disorder. I just need to have somebody help me deliver yeah, The baby's baby. coming now. The baby's <laughs> coming now. Just not exactly the experience that I thought it was going to be. And then in terms of the other, really the other piece was that they wanted to take levels very frequently. So I needed mm. to have blood drawn every 12 hours. And so I know now if I'm going to have another child, which is... TBD at this point, that I would ask 
from the get-go to have some sort of port put in because Mm -hmm. I went in to the hospital on Tuesday night and we left Friday. And every 12 hours from Tuesday night to Friday, I was stuck again to have blood drawn. And I pretty quickly ran out of places that it was comfortable to have that done. Mm -hmm. And it was problematic thing, you know, to have to have a nurse come in and then explain to them that I was really out of places to go for this blood and then to be underslept at that point, right? You know, I didn't sleep for a couple days. Yeah. And then what about in the immediate postpartum to your point earlier about the von Willebrand factor levels having a tendency to rise or stabilize during pregnancy? How did you manage the immediate postpartum period? That's a great question. So the treatment plan was that I was using two drugs. So one is transexemic acid, which is very commonly used to treat bungalow browns. And then the other is willate, which I actually had to Mm. do a trial of before I went into labor. They wanted to see how my levels responded to that and they were happy with how they responded. So that's what was used immediately postpartum. So I don't know, within an hour or two of the birth, I was given willate and then transexemic acid and all my levels went way above what they should have been. But you know, as, as they should respond to those two drugs. And then we left. So we were discharged from the hospital on Friday night. And it was after we had convinced the hematology team that they needed to let us leave because the last levels that they wanted hadn't come back yet. But sometimes it can take days for the numbers to come back. I think the tests take a long time to run. I think someone, you know, took mercy on us and said, let them go home because I think we would have been there until like Monday because it just takes so long for the the numbers to come back. But I was fine. Everything was fine, which is great. There was no excessive bleeding or anything like that. And at the end of the day, that's what's most important that I, you know, I didn't have any excessive bleeding, but it was certainly a learning experience for me. And what about for your husband, Josh, I believe, I, you know, it's interesting to hear people share what their partner's experience is like and how, I mean, a partner's experience through pregnancy, labor and delivery is, is, is a whole thing. And then on top of it, there is the bleeding disorder piece, which hasn't been a huge part of your life necessarily, but all of a sudden here in pregnancy and labor and delivery, it's coloring all of it. How is he able to support you and what can you share about his own experience through all of this? Man, that is such a good question. And it's so interesting because he was really frustrated you know, with me during this whole process because he's not well-versed in the bleeding disorder. And to hear things like you have to do a trial of this drug to see how your body reacts and things that I had experienced as a child. So I, I had some experience with it, but he, he didn't. And he didn't understand mm-hmm. why it wasn't clear cut and why there were so many doctors involved and that nobody was giving us a straight answer. He, he was very frustrated as was I, but I guess it was just a little bit more comfortable to me because I had grown up with this bleeding disorder and he helped me certainly in the postpartum period because when I reached my breaking point of saying, you know, I feel like a pincushion and I'm not doing well, he advocated and said, can you find somebody else who maybe is a better stick because my wife is, she needs a break, like go and come back and hopefully things will be a little bit better because at some point I I really, I had hit a wall of 
Yeah, sure. And you also slipped in there, too, that if you decide to have another child, which at this point is TBD, and I'm, of course, you're welcome to share or not share anything that you want. You are here completely of your own accord and free will. But I'm curious how much of the TBD is influenced by von Willebrand disease and what you experienced in the first pregnancy. Actually, I would say that I think I would like to go through pregnancy, labor, and delivery again because of the knowledge that I gained. Like, I would love to be able to use all of the things that I learned throughout the experience and apply it again, because I think it was a lot rockier than I thought it was going to be. And so I think I'd like another opportunity. The TBD for now is, you know, finances, I would say, are a big factor and and just seeing what it's like to have one. I also am an only child, so that plays Mm. into it all. I've always enjoyed being an only child. So I don't have that like, oh, I, I have a sibling and I love this relationship for my son. But yeah. And of course, you know, the other piece of it is whether or not Nate has a bleeding disorder. We have an appointment in August. Both of us are going to get our levels checked out and and we'll see. But that will be the next chapter of just, you know, having possibly having a child with with the bleeding disorder and, and what it looks like to navigate that as a mom. So by the time audience hears this, you may have at least an initial level from that test. So be curious to hear that. And I know you're going to be a phenomenal mom to him. And oh, thank regardless you. Regardless of the status of a, of a bleeding disorder. So my, my final question to you, Annalise, is whether or you mentioned the lessons that you've learned that you could take into the next pregnancy, uh, sort of along those lines. I know we have a fair amount of um, caregivers, uh, parents, uh, people considering parents or considering having another child as part of the audience. Is there anything in particular or a couple of things in particular that you learned and would like to share for anyone out there with von Willebrand disease who's considering having a child? And of course, everyone's experience is different. No two cases are the same and all of that. But your lived experience is important. Is there anything in particular that you would like to underscore? So I would say make sure that you advocate for yourself in terms of come up with your questions early, know who is providing the answers. So are the answers going to come from the hematologist or the answers coming from the OBGYN, somebody else, and and a timeline for those things I think are really important because as I mentioned, you know, doing this all and feeling like it was down to the wire just added to the anxiety of it all. And I would say making sure all the members of the care team are on the same page. So having not met the doctor, and that really goes, I think, for anyone who's having a baby, just try and meet all of the doctors in the practice who could potentially deliver your baby. I know they try and encourage that. They they certainly did at my practice, but unless I think you're very meticulous about who you're having the appointments with, you miss somebody. And I I miss the person who I, you know, ended up delivering Nate. So I think that's important. And then in the moment uh, or having a plan for delivery that involves the role that your significant other will play and just having those conversations mm. you know, ahead of time saying, if I'm at the point where I can't speak up for myself, can you help me do that? And what will that look like? Because mm. especially for my relationship with Josh, I think I'm typically the person who's very vocal about things and I'm much more extroverted. And I'm the person who is actually very familiar with a lot of the doctors because of my job. I work for the medical school. So he's not usually that person. And I think 
next time, if we have another child, we'll definitely talk about if in the moment I can't say something, how will you speak up and what will you say? Because I think it's important to to plan as much as you can, obviously. Yeah. Can't know what's going to happen, but if you don't plan, then you don't have any way to respond. And I found that's a tricky spot too. Where to step in on behalf of Natalie and managing my own experience through all of that and being a good, mm-hmm. it takes mindfulness and intentionality. And of course, no one is at the top of their game because everyone's right. tired and emotionally charged. Like, it's such a surreal experience. So doing 100%. the prep work is in part to help you later through a surreal experience actually have a checklist of things, whether it's mental or written down. So you're not just relying on how you're feeling in that really, really bizarre moment. Yeah. Oh, so true. Thank you for coming on to share. I'm glad you, Nate, Josh, everyone, healthy, happy. This is a good story. But it's also such a reminder that even when as adults, if we have conditions well-managed, well-cared for, pregnancy in particular, but there are other milestone moments and transitions. Pregnancy, though, maybe atop the list of times where just things are turned upside down and literally biochemistry and hormones are different. The body's operating differently. What it means to live with a chronic blood disorder, it's different. And I think in your story that that really shows through. So I'm glad you shared it because I bet there's a lot of people who can relate to it. So thanks for coming on and It's good to see you. We'll have to do it in person, off mic, in a real way in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for for having me, and it was such a pleasure speaking with you. You're welcome. Take care, Annalise. Thank you to Annalise for sharing your story. PJL, that was wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with listeners. That was awesome. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Annalise. Hey, PJL, I think it's time for The Well. The Well. It's a good one today. Host Jessica Lauren Richmond has two terabytes of iCloud storage worth of memories. (laughs) Is now the time to delete them? How about now? Here we go with The Well. A terabyte disc can hold 1,000 copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I have two terabytes of iCloud storage full to the brim of memories. It might be time to clear the old drives, as they say, if anyone says that. I document because I care about documenting my own life. I'm driven by the unbearable lightness of being, which is not just a great book by Russian philosopher Milan Kundera. See, the moment is always happening, and it's always going, going, gone. This drive to capture it, the moments in photos, video is why I have a digital hoarding problem. But it also speaks to something deeply intrinsic to my nature, which I consider human. Why, oh why, is it so important to remember? It's important because you want to have good memories. That feels like circular logic, but thanks, Reed. The thing is, I can't help feeling like I'm missing the moments sometimes by striving to remember them. So how do we protect space to find ourselves in the present moment? You know the now, or, um, well, the now? No, I mean, how about now? All right, no, I, for real, now? Well, for now, welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. How can we not find ourselves there in the now? Capital N. It's a place, there's sanctuary in it, certainly. And there's certainly nowhere else to go. So for the moment, let's stop and be in the now. Reed, do you know what I mean? 
switched a pre-recorded interview of Reed at HFA months ago. It's like when we started having children, my wife's like, let's have his... We always kind of had a goal of like having four kids and let's have the four kids as fast as possible, get them out of the house and go see the world. But now that's happening. I have two out of the house. I have my third who is about to graduate. And as much as children come back as boomerangs, I sit there and think, am I losing some of those opportunities with my kids? And am I going to be there as much for my son? And I even tell them, Eric, we need to like enjoy this right now. Right, because otherwise we might miss it. How, if we're here for it? Well, because we may be thinking about what's to come after the kids leave the house or what we've already missed. Remember when the kids were babies and how fast they grow. What is it about witnessing growth and change that reminds us that we are both in the moment and leaving the moment at the same time? Like, for example, when we are leaving the moment of seeing a kid be a baby and seeing the baby grow to be a kid, where are we? Now, the metaphorical imagined kid created for this example, let's call the kid Dante. Dante was four and now Dante's 12. But remember when Dante was two? Or okay, Dante is 40, but remember when Dante was 14? Or how about now, Dante is 88, but remember when Dante was 50? Unless you're Benjamin Button, life moves in one direction, but memory moves all ways. My hypothesis at the well is that aging helps us understand the one direction, that life-moving direction, and that that direction leads us towards death. So let's talk again about death with Heather, of Death Differently. The concept of, you know, perfectly well people who are not consciously thinking about death means they're likely not consciously thinking about the quality of their life in the same way. And I would say that there's a little bit more of a quality of being awake when you have to be present with your body in every moment. Being present with the body, being awake as it changes and grows, that's an experience of the now that some folks spend a lot of time trying to escape. Sometimes when I'm not obsessively documenting my own life, I watch my skin aging and it's quite calming actually, makes me want to take pictures of it as it shifts. And looking directly at it certainly feels better than aiming to avoid seeing it. At least that's the vibe here at the well. And now, halfway through this season of segments, I'm looking back for a moment and considering what's changed by taking time to ponder such things here at the well. Things like the present moment, the capital N now. And soon we'll look back on what it means to acknowledge the past or in my case, at least two terabytes worth of documented life. That's about 2,000 Encyclopedia Britannicas. And if I just, gulp, deleted it all, those moments that happened still happened. It's not like if a tree falls in a woods kind of thing, picks or it didn't happen isn't actually true. Still, I am who I am, and I sure I'm glad I have documentation of some things in my life. I guess I suppose I do plan to look back in the future and see who I was in the moment now. It's an odd duality, no? You want to live in the moment, make the most of it, make awesome memories. Looking back to my teaching days, you know, students used to say, Mr. Morgan, can I sign your yearbook? Yeah, you can sign my yearbook if you only write nice things. I'm only going to write nice things in yours. So even if you didn't like me, you need to know that 20 years from now, if you open up, Mr. Morgan will have written a nice thing about you in the yearbook because I want you to remember the good moments. 
So let's make more of those in-moment times, in the moments, so you can have memories with your kids, with people, your coworkers, your friends, your family. That's what I try to do. Me too, Reed. Me too. Thank you, Jessica, for bringing us to and from the well once again. <laughs> and thank you again to Dr. Nathan Cottle for joining us in a segment made possible by Genentech. And thank you to Annalise for sharing your story with our listeners. I'd like to thank CSL Bearing for making today's episode possible. And as always, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, for making this and all episodes of the Bloodstream Podcast possible. Amy Board, we're back again on October 28th. Most likely we'll be in person for the recording of that episode anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we'll both be in the same country. None of us will be recently out of surgery. It's going to be great. That's, ex- that's exciting for some of us. Uh, <laughs> what can the listeners expect to hear on that episode? Well, we're going to introduce to you Michelle Condi from Hemophilia of Georgia. She works in public policy there and has a long history and relationship with the community. She's also affected, so that's going to be uh, a terrific interview. And then there's a new podcast in Glansman's that we're going to hear from Peter Zeese. We're excited to hear about that. And we're back with another segment of Let's Talk, our mental health segment with Joshua Sterling Bragg. So it's going to be a banger episode. There's just never a slow day. No softballs in this league. Never. And with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen and share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, or complete strangers. Really, anyone you can get the ear of. Hey, you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss? Is there an expert or a guest that you're dying to hear from? Or would you like to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films? If so, any of those. Email us <laughs> at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also follow myself or Patrick on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. We love all of them equally. We do. We're like parents <laughs> of social media platforms? Yes. Something like that. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>